Hello everyone, this is Varni Shri Hirlekar. I am an urban planner and a studio tutor at the Faculty of Planning at SEPT University. I have with me today Mr. Vishram Patil, an alumnus of the School of Planning at SEPT and an experienced planner with over 30 years experience with the Mumbai Metropolitan Regional Development Authority, the MMRDA. Mr. Patil has worked on regional planning, financing of urban infrastructure projects, land acquisition, and rehabilitation and resettlement, often called R&R, in the context of urban infrastructure projects. This is also the topic of our conversation today. In this episode, Mr. Patil will share his views about the importance of urban R&R, borrowing from his rich experience of working on the implementation of various such projects in Mumbai. Welcome, Mr. Patil. To start this conversation, uh, would you give us a little background on how social safeguards like rehabilitation and resettlement has come to be such an important part of an urban planner's domain, uh, especially in the last few decades. Thank you, Manishri. This is important for urban planners. Traditionally, planners were engaged in preparing long-term statutory plans. However, from the time of commencement of JNNURM in 2005 and later followed by other urban missions such as Smart City, Amrut and even state-level missions in Maharashtra, under which large-scale funding was made available for development of urban infrastructure, the emphasis has shifted to projects and planners are now increasingly engaged in project formulation and implementation. Many of these public projects, for example, the expansion of suburban railway and metro railway are often conceived and implemented outside the framework of development plans or master plans. Even when lands are generally reserved, for certain projects like roads, these are not always legally acquired or developed. Such lands cannot be legally used for any other purposes and therefore either remain vacant or which is more likely the case are encroached primarily due to failure of our urban systems in providing affordable housing to the migrating and local poor and due to the landowners in connivance with slumlords and other interested parties extracting value from such lands by actively encouraging their encroachment. These lands hence have to be acquired and often cleared to be used for infrastructure projects. In this context, the concept of social safeguards and rehabilitation and resettlement of project-affected persons has gained importance over the past few decades and has emerged as an important component that planners need to consider. Thank you for this background, Mr. Patil. Could you also give us a little more context on how the RNR policy has evolved, uh, specifically in the context of Mumbai city? Yes, of course. Experience indicates that encroachers in the form of slum dwellers on public and private lands often form a large component of RNR requirement of projects. The erstwhile Land Acquisition Act of 1894 only allowed for payment of compensation towards land and structures which also did not reflect the true market value to private parties having legal rights over such land and no other occupants were entitled for any benefits. Initially, such occupants on private lands and also those illegally occupying public lands were summarily evicted for clearance of lands for projects. In 1962, the Municipal Corporation of Greater Mumbai adopted a policy of tolerating structures which were in existence at the time of formation of the state of Maharashtra and such structures were protected. 
Subsequently, in view of a long history of proliferation of slums in Mumbai and other urban areas of the state, the state government adopted a policy of granting protection from eviction to occupants of slum structures in existence as of a cut-off date, which was originally 1976, and the cut-off date was extended from time to time. Accordingly, it is necessary to rehabilitate eligible occupants if they are to be evicted in the larger public interest. Initially, affected and eligible slum dwellers were provided pitches on other public lands in lieu of their structures. While the slum redevelopment schemes were introduced in the 1990s, the first comprehensive policy for R&R was introduced for Mumbai Urban Transport Project or MUTP in the year 2000 to satisfy the policies of the World Bank which funded the project. The MUTP R&R policy provides for coverage of all categories of affected structures and all types of PAPs, which includes slum dwellers on public and private lands, survey-based eligibility for illegitimate occupants of lands and buildings, provision of alternative accommodation to occupants against affected residential and non-residential structures, compensation for economic losses, redressal of grievances, etc. And most importantly, it included an entitlement matrix indicating benefits for all the categories of PAPs. The policy aimed to follow the basic principles of compensating displaced persons at replacement cost and assisting them in improving or at least restoring their former living standards, income earning capacity and production levels. The MUTP R&R policy is subsequently applied to all other projects funded by multilateral and bilateral agencies, which also largely follow the social safeguard policies of the World Bank. For other projects, entitlements are provided as per the MUTP R&R policy, but the cutoff date for eligibility is decided as per the general state policy. Uh, so is rehabilitation and resettlement of project affected people a legal right in India, which is mandated under an act? For the first time in the history of the country, a national R&R policy was formulated in 2007 which was followed by the more recent right to fair compensation and transparency in land acquisition, rehabilitation and resettlement act of 2013 or LAR act as popularly called. The LAR act for the first time establishes R&R as a legal right for both categories of persons, those interested in land and those affected by acquisition. It also provides among other matters for determination of social impact and public purpose, consultative and participatory procedure, higher compensation for land that is at least 200% of officially estimated market value and R&R benefits constituting financial compensation towards hardships in addition to alternative housing units. It is however pointed out that the LAR Act has certain limitations in that it does not cover in its scope structures located on public lands and NYSH's payment of only a meager financial compensation and no alternative built space to occupants of non-residential structures, including business establishments, which has substantial implications for the livelihood of such PAPs. Under the social safeguards framework now accepted for involuntary resettlement across the country, the principles of avoiding or minimizing displacement, providing benefits equal to replacement cost, and providing assistance for shifting and improving or at least restoring former living standards and livelihoods are widely accepted. The important elements of the process are information disclosure, 
meaningful consultation and grievance addressal. Now that we have established the importance of R&R as a social safeguard, uh, could you take us through how this is actually implemented on ground? I believe it's more of a consultative process that hinges on effectively uh, dealing with people and their interests. So what are the different steps and also maybe the impediments to this process? Unlike execution of project works, the process of r and requires dealing with people on issues which are very important to them and hence is very dynamic and complex, requires social management skills and is sometimes time consuming. Delay or failure in the implementation of LA and R&R can lead to abandonment of projects or as more commonly seen, lead to large time and cost overruns. Resettlement is an involuntary process and is usually registered by most PAPs, including by encroachers and more so by those with legal titles. It is seldom a case that the PAPs also derive or share the benefits of the project unless it is a land development project because they are displaced from project locations and shifted elsewhere. Involuntary resettlement is always considered as something to be avoided as far as possible or at least minimized. In the first stage of project pre-feasibility, the preliminary assessment of magnitude of land and R&R requirement needs to be done. The project may not be viable if land involves high degree of, of encumbrances. In the feasibility stage, alternative alignments and designs for projects need to be evaluated to avoid or at least minimize the LA and R&R. For example, most railway and road sub-projects under MUTP required acquisition of only few private lands, although R&R components were significantly more. The new metro projects are also being largely restricted to the existing ROWs of roads for viaducts and stations and to public lands for depots and do not require large-scale land acquisition and R&R. The second stage involves assessment of social impacts and carrying out of detailed baseline census surveys of affected people and their properties. The SIA is a broader exercise to identify types and extent of impacts and their likely mitigation measures and generally involves only a sample survey of affected population. Such SIA reports are usually prepared as a part of preparation of DPRs and are not very useful in actual implementation of LA and R&R. The basic document required for implementation of LA and R&R is the Baseline Socioeconomic Survey or the BSES accompanied by maps indicating affected structures superimposed on project alignment drawings that is the corridor of impact. The BSES gives useful information on number and types of, use, types of uses of structures including community structures, occupants of structures, baseline socioeconomic status of occupants, details of employees of business establishments, vulnerable households, etc., which is useful in drawing resettlement action plans or RAPs and post-resettlement evaluation. Since land ownership details cannot be captured in such surveys, a separate exercise needs to be carried out for identifying and measuring private lands and then the PAP data for such lands needs to be segregated for identifying PAPs with legal rights and for formulating a different RAP for them. A related issue usually faced in urban R&R and experienced in projects implemented in Mumbai is that while the lands for public amenities are marked on DP sheets, most of these lands are not measured and demarcated on ground. 
This issue is severely faced in cases of road projects where road line is yet to be defined. Further, the survey agency, which is, which is usually an NGO, may not be technically sound and may make errors in superimposition of cadastral and project maps. The project boundaries as shown on such drawings indicate which structures are affected and which are not and in a densely populated affected slum area, a difference of a meter can mean substantial change in the number of affected structures. It is also increasingly seen that the infrastructure projects are taken up without complete planning of execution to the last detail or are implemented on design and build basis which leads to non-finalization of designs until commencement of execution and also leads to changes in alignments and designs caused by various reasons including discovery of previously unknown major utilities below ground. This results in change or addition in impacts which were not originally envisaged and makes it difficult for the R&R agency to carry out meaningful consultation with PAPs and maintain transparency in the process. Further, in the absence of proper and updated land records, it is also very difficult to carry out title search and establish beneficiaries for acquisition of necessary private lands and it is generally left to the interested parties to prove their ownership. The next logical step is to prepare resettlement implementation or action plan consisting of eligibility and entitlement matrix, valuation of assets, compensation and resettlement packages involving provision of alternative accommodation and other financial benefits, estimation of compensation and R&R costs, schedule of implementation, grievance addressal mechanism, requirements of livelihood and post-resettlement support and tools for monitoring and evaluation. So preparation of this resettlement action plan and arriving at an agreement on the same appears to be uh, one of the most important stages in the process before implementation starts. Could you outline a few important aspects of this action plan? One of the most important issues to be decided in the RAP is about eligibility. The eligibility of slum dwellers for R&R benefits is often based on the existence of a structure as of a cutoff date which is necessary to avoid certain persons erecting new structures in the project affected areas after announcement of the project for obtaining R&R benefits. Such a cutoff date needs to be associated with the project cycle, say the date of carrying out of baseline survey. Artificially specifying an unrelated past cutoff date granting protection to occupants of some slum structures and not to others who came into existence after such date is unreasonable and unjustifiable given the fact that the reasons for formation of slums continue to exist. Further, in a place like Mumbai, a larger gap between the cutoff date and carrying out of survey means substantial proportion of ineligible PAPs, which results in more resistance to R&R and adds to difficulties related to eviction of ineligible PAPs. At the same time, it is also necessary to strictly enforce project-related cutoffs and take appropriate measures to discourage elements trying to take undue benefits. Another issue pertains to R&R entitlements, which are being given free of cost in Mumbai. Providing free of cost houses and shops is criticized as a policy encouraging new squatting in different in affected areas, new migration to urban areas for free housing, an argument which is not appropriate, and non-commitment of beneficiaries to the alternative accommodation provided. Providing an alternative accommodation of replacement value as propagated under social safeguards for R&R should be mandatory 
since it compensates for the loss. If the alternative accommodation is of more value, which is normally the case since a formal built space with legal title is allotted on ownership basis, the amount towards additional value can be considered for recovery from the beneficiaries. As regards implementation schedules, it is seen that the LA and R&R schedules are seldom dovetailed into the schedule of execution of projects and project works are often awarded even when the preparatory activities for LA and R&R are going on. As a result, the execution of projects is usually restricted only to unencumbered lands and execution on encumbered lands has to await completion of LA and R&R. On the flip side, it is also difficult to protect cleared lands if project execution cannot be immediately undertaken on such sites. The most important aspect of RAP is the ready availability of stock of alternative accommodation required for R&R when project lands are required to be cleared as per the schedule of execution. The procurement of land and construction of built premises can easily take two to three years, if not more. And this cannot be delayed until after the project is formulated and requirement of stock is identified, which will only delay the project by such period of time. One step in this direction can be taken during the preparation of DP by at least broadly identifying the land requirement for R&R for the city and earmarking and reserving such lands at desirable and suitable locations, which is being increasingly done in Mumbai. Like you mentioned, the public authorities uh, really need to have a readily built stock of alternative housing to implement this uh, rehabilitation process and execute projects on time. So how does uh, Mumbai approach development of this public housing stock? Yes. In Mumbai, the provisions related to slum rehabilitation schemes allow development of vacant land parcels by private landowners or developers for construction of PAP housing and shops at higher FSI of up to four, but with differentiated and lowered standards of bylaws. Such stock is then handed over free of cost to the public agency against transferable development rights or TDRs for land and construction under the DC regulations. This is a variant of the in-situ SR scheme, but here the developer gets the TDRs, which can be used elsewhere as FSI or building rights for carrying out construction in addition to that is normally permissible on receiving plots. The TDR is a marketable instrument and it can be sold for use by others. The size of a standard tenement has increased from 225 square feet in, in stages to 300 square feet carpet area now. In addition, the developer pays funds towards infrastructure charges per square meter of additional construction which are to be used to upgrade infrastructure required for additional population and also pays funds towards maintenance charges per PAP tenement for bearing related costs. This mechanism was initially used for rehabilitating about 19,000 PAPs under MUTP, where the stock was procured under three different options, which were purchase of such ready stock from other public agency, obtaining of public lands and construction of houses under the project, and procurement of land and houses from developers. Generally, the SR schemes have greatly facilitated procurement of large resettlement stock of about 64,000 tenements free of cost by MMRD, which is used for R&R of about 44,000 PAPs of various infrastructure projects so far. Such stock could, however, be used only for non-title holder slum dwellers 
and is not accepted by title holders as a, as a resettlement benefit. For them, which were few in number, separate buildings at higher standards were required to be constructed by procuring lands at suitable locations while also paying rent to them until such stock could be built and allotted. Mr. Patel, you will agree that in most cases, the point of contention is the displacement itself. Project affected people often resist shifting from their original location, primarily because of the uh, fear of losing their livelihoods. What are your views on this and how can livelihood considerations be reconciled into the process? Yes, livelihood is a very important uh, aspect of R&R. Although the social safeguard policies and provisions of the LAR Act attempt to address different concerns of the PAPs by prescribing various mechanisms, procedures and processes and provision of an alternative tenement surely leads to improvement of living conditions. Involuntary resettlement continues to remain a difficult process for those being displaced, more so for business enterprises and people generally demand their in-situ rehabilitation so that they can continue to derive the benefits attached to the original location and continue to maintain their social networks in local community. Larger land development projects such as new towns, airports and of course local town planning schemes provide opportunities for adopting flexibility in planning to accommodate PAPs. Certain circumstances also made such resettlement possible under MUTP by allowing construction of a shopping mall at Pawai and shopping line in R&R colony at Majas along Jogeshwari Vikroli Link Road, accommodation of PAPs in a local scheme at Kurla along Santa Cruz Chembur Link Road, and construction of a PAP and free sale component at Ghatkopar near Central Railway along Eastern Express Highway, all under local slum rehabilitation schemes, which helped a great deal in satisfying the requirements of title holder PAPs and commercial PAPs closer to their original locations. However, such opportunities are not generally available at all project impact locations. A related problem peculiarly faced due to non-availability of land adjacent to project locations is about relocating the affected community structures such as religious places and public toilets for the use of balanced community outside the project boundaries. On the other hand, it is also found difficult to protect unaffected lands located outside the ROW which are left vacant by demolition of partly affected structures after provision of resettlement benefits to the occupant. The critical issue related to re relocation is about how lands required for in-situ resettlement of PAPs in addition to those actually required for project works can be obtained. The public lands available nearby can be probably used by assigning such priority but chances of availability of such lands is usually remote. In such cases, proposals of a local layout integrating the main project of infrastructure and also the project of R&R will have to be prepared. It should however be considered whether the R&R requirement thus increased can also be fulfilled within the additional land. Flexibility in planning for land uses, building rules, etc. allowed under and backed by legal provisions is thus necessary to adopt innovative approaches for successful R&R in the vicinity of project locations. This is being done in case of PAPs residing in buildings located in Girgaon and Kalbadevi area affected by the underground Metro 3 project in Mumbai. So what are the approaches to protecting and restoring livelihoods of the affected populations? 
if they cannot be resettled on the same site or uh, or in a nearby location yes despite the best compensation packages and rnr benefits there is a danger of loss of livelihood for residential paps shifted far away from original locations and businesses shifted to unsuitable locations like ground floor tenements in rnr colonies this calls for a post rnr assessment of livelihood status of shifted paps vis-a-vis their baseline status and taking mitigation measures in the form of different support programs to ensure restoration as may be necessary this has been done in the case of mutp by mmrt it was found that while the income earning capacity of the main earner of the family was not lost many paps lost the opportunities available in original locations for secondary income primarily earned by women when they were resettled resettled at a far away and relatively underdeveloped location the mmrda facilitated incubation of and initially nurtured an association of pap women by the name sankalpa mahila udyog utpadak sanstha or sankalp which produces and supplies food items and other articles and is now running on its own for the past more than 10 years with 400 members and 100 employees and with annual turnover of rupees 11 million and a profit of rupees 1 million the mmrda also constructed and allotted business sheds in an rnr colony to provide livelihood support to vulnerable households rnr colonies are often criticized for their distant locations poor quality of housing and lack of basic physical and social infrastructure why do some of these issues still persist the resettlement stock procured under sr schemes and for that matter in various other types of resettlement options used elsewhere usually faces certain issues related to distant location non availability of physical infrastructure inadequacy of services lack of social amenities inappropriate built forms poor quality of construction and difficulties faced in post resettlement management i will now explain these one by one due to general non availability of public lands near project locations resettlement sites are often located in far away places resulting in increased travel distances and involves more time and cost for resettled paps even in case of sr schemes it is more profitable for the developer to implement schemes on low value lands which are of course located away from the main activity areas far away locations also mean less developed physical and transport infrastructure in the neighborhood and also assignment of lower priority by the ulb non availability of various service networks often leads to intermediate local solutions such as installation of water pumps to boost pressure provision of septic tanks and stps for storage of sewerage and treatment etc which are not subsequently maintained although the third schedule of lar act specifies that almost all possible basic and secondary amenities and services should be provided in resettlement sites the examples of such sites are yet to be seen it is also seen that while the basic services are generally provided in resettlement sites the service levels like per capita water supply number of hours of availability of electricity etc could be below the minimum standards non provision of social amenities such as community halls floor mills market places for basic needs religious places and play areas is a major issue in sr schemes since norms followed for such, such amenities are based on size or area of the scheme and not the density and population generally dc regulations being normative do not require provision of such amenities in smaller layouts 
the issue in larger layouts is different in the sense that some layouts may have dp reservations which need to be developed by the ulb as for other amenities while lands may be earmarked and the amenities may be provided by the developer or rndr agency its maintenance is usually the responsibility of ulb which may not assign the desired priority to it depending on its overall approach to such matters across the urban area it is often seen that the resettlement housing is generally designed and built without taking into account peculiar needs of the displaced community for example non provisional spaces for home based enterprises domestic animals community activities etc a peculiar example is of a of an affected slum structure which is used for both residence and business the building codes do not provide for construction of such mixed use structures thereby limiting the rnr options for such paps another example is of floor mills which can operate in slum structures but cannot be run in ground floor commercial spaces of rnr buildings due to unsuitable building designs and non availability of necessary electric load further since the housing built under sr schemes is high density and is with smaller sizes of tenements the designs often ignore concerns related to light and ventilation resulting in overcrowded and unhealthy living conditions public projects are normally awarded to the lowest cost bidder and laxity in supervision results in poor quality of construction further the defect liability periods are usually only 2 to 3 years leading to emergence of repair requirements soon after the pap is are resettled which are expected to be addressed by the new residents furthermore the absence of participation of paps in the process of planning and construction of resettlement stock leads to lack of accountability on the part of other stakeholders now so this is my last question mr patil could you also explain the problems in maintaining and managing these housing complexes and in the end if you could conclude by outlining uh, three to four ways in which the rnr process can be improved to have better outcomes for affected families the resettled slum dwellers lack the technical financial and managerial capacities in maintaining and managing their buildings even though the formal and legal mechanisms of cooperative housing societies exist managing online infrastructure and amenities in rnr colonies is even more complex and requires higher capacities in mumbai concessions in property tax and water charges are provided for such residential tenements further the maintenance fund received from the developer of sr scheme is also provided to the cooperative housing societies of the residents however despite these measures significant number of residents find it difficult to pay subsidized charges levied by cooperative housing societies and as a result societies find it difficult to pay taxes and charges and also maintain the building and operate the services further while the rnr agency expects the resident paps to manage their affairs post rnr the ulb treats rnr sites as private layouts and also expects residents to manage the services as usually is the case for other private complexes this puts the residents in a very precarious condition leading to unsafe unhygienic and deteriorating conditions over a short period of time at the end i would like to list some improvements which if carried out can smoothen the process of rnr and safeguard the interests of the paps firstly project agencies generally lack the capacities in planning for and carrying out la and rnr which needs to be developed such experts should actively participate in the project implementation units 
Secondly, it is necessary to strengthen the systems for information disclosure, consultation and grievance redressal related to LA and R&R and keep the channels open right from the beginning of the project. Thirdly, it is important to explore and incorporate the rehabilitation options for affected business establishments in project designs themselves. For example, provision of shops in metro stations as far as possible to protect livelihoods. Fourthly, it is very important to identify requirements of project lands and R&R requirements of title holders early in the project cycle and develop suitable resettlement options in consultation with such BAPs. Fifthly, it is necessary to improve the space standards and designs for development of R&R colonies and provide better community spaces and social facilities to make them more livable. Sixthly and lastly, it is critical to assess adverse impacts on livelihood of PAPs post-resettlement and design and implement suitable and sustainable support programs. Thank you, Mr. Patil, for sharing these insights. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Do check out the other episodes in this podcast series on urban planning in India. And do not forget to like, share and subscribe.